Welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushville. I'm your host for this week's magazine. This is Sound Prince for the week of October 22, 2017. The 2017 Convention of the Kentucky Council of the Blind is coming up the weekend of November 17 and 18, and the theme is Hit a Home Run with KCB. Experience two days packed with workshops, programs, exhibits, technology, good food, and good friends. The KCB board wants as many of our members as possible to come to convention, so we're offering a $75 stipend to help with travel expenses for those of you who live outside the Metro Louisville area. Look for your convention packet. It should arrive in your mailbox this week, and it's filled with information and details about the weekend. The convention will be held at the Ramada Inn North in Louisville, and room rates are $80 per night for up to four people in a room. Your rate includes breakfast, and rooms have both refrigerators and microwaves. Make reservations by calling the Ramada at 502-897-5101. Be sure to tell them that you are with the Kentucky Council of the Blind, so you will receive our discounted rate. For more information, or if you don't receive a convention packet and you'd like one, call us at 502-895-4598. And listen to Soundprints next week for more details. There are a number of apps for the iPhone that can read text or identify things. Examples are TapTapC, Seeing AI, KNFB Reader, and barcode readers such as Digitize, among others. I just discovered a new app this weekend that, in my opinion, is quicker and easier to use than the other apps out there. It's called Envision AI, E-N-V-I-S-I-O-N space AI, and it's being created by a Dutch developer. Envision AI is in beta or test mode right now, but users are encouraged to download it, try it out, and give feedback so the developers can make it better. It's free, and I downloaded it yesterday from the App Store. I was able to begin reading boxes and cans and mail right away without much of a learning curve. The magazine NLS News just arrived in our mailbox, and it contains information about several projects being developed to make reading of talking books and Braille easier. NLS has finished digitizing its collection of cassette books, and it is now turning its attention to four projects that will change the way we read and how quickly we can get books and magazines in the future. Check out excerpts from News Magazine on page 2. Every week there are interesting articles posted on the ACB lists, and we try to bring some of them to you from time to time. This week on page 3, We include an article about the anticipated approval by the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, of the first gene therapy used to improve vision in patients with retinal diseases. While the treatment outlined in this article is specifically for a rare form of retinitis pigmentosa, it holds promise for similar treatments for other genetic problems in the future. Web accessibility is a big deal. There's nothing more frustrating than going to a website to read articles or buy products and discovering that your screen reader or braille display won't work with the site. But does the ADA cover the web? That's a question that's still up in the air, or should we say, the cloud. 
Read about lawsuits and the court's divided view on this issue on page 4. It seems that there is always someone trying to invent some new gadget that will perform some fantastic task that promises to make our lives unbelievably better. Sometimes these gadgets turn out to be amazing advances, while other times they disappear from view, never to be seen again. We've included an article on page 5 about six MIT engineering students, all women, who are working diligently to create a device that will translate print text to Braille almost instantaneously. The current model is about the size of a candy bar. Unlike the old Opticon and some current apps, the goal is that you won't have to track or keep your place on the page for the device to work. And the best goal is a very affordable price tag. Read all about it on page 5. And on page 6 is the Soundprints calendar. Page 2. News is a publication of the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. The July-September edition from 2017 has a number of items that we think would be of interest to Soundprints listeners. The first item is Analog to Digital Conversion, Mission Accomplished by Mark Swartz and Mark Lehman. NLS will soon celebrate the completion of a project that began in 2003 and kicked into high gear in 2010 to convert thousands of older books from analog cassette to digital audio. The benefit to patrons of the analog to digital transition can perhaps best be illustrated with a story not from, but about the Bible. Famed actor Alexander Scorby's monumental recording of the King James Version of the Old and New Testaments has been part of the NLS collection for decades. One set released on vinyl in 1964 required 68 records that played at 16 and two-thirds RPM, half the speed of commercial LPs. Things got a little easier for patrons when NLS released Scorby's complete recording on cassette tape, 15 of them. But in 2010, NLS released all 79 hours and 2 minutes of Scorby's Old and New Testament on one, just one, digital cartridge. The recording was simultaneously made available for patrons to download from BARD. At the time, the Holy Bible containing the Old and New Testaments was one of about 3,000 titles that NLS offered on digital cartridge. Today, NLS patrons can choose from 95,000 titles on digital cartridge and or on BARD. That includes more than 42,000 titles previously available on cassette that have been converted to digital. With the wrap-up of the analog-to-digital conversion, NLS has retired its C1 cassette book machine, a workhorse of the program for more than 30 years. NLS began distributing books on cassette tapes in 1969. Over time, NLS incorporated improvements to increase the playing time of a tape, such as a slower playback speed, 15 sixteenths inches per second, half the speed of commercial tapes, and four-track rather than two-track recording. NLS began distributing modified commercial cassette machines in the late 1960s. The first model, built to NLS specs, came out in 1973. 
The C-1 was introduced in 1981. The last C-1, the 1,240th, was delivered to NLS on March 1, 2007, including earlier models, a total of 1.5 million cassette book machines were manufactured and distributed over nearly 40 years to more than 25 million NLS patrons. The analog-to-digital conversion has been a major undertaking for NLS, especially since 2010, NLS Director Karen Kenninger said. So many of the classics and really good old books were on cassette. Our patrons wanted them in the new format to take advantage of digital's fantastic sound quality and easier navigation for the instant access that BARD provides. It's great to finally be able to say mission accomplished on this particular effort, but we're also happy that a couple of years of new adventures lie ahead. NLS on the Move, text by David Palazzari. Four pilot projects are underway at NLS to test new services and technologies to improve our patrons' reading experience. Here's a preview. Wireless downloads. Simple devices with built-in wireless service can act as a wireless mail carrier for patrons, dissolving many barriers to access. Think of it as similar to the ease with which people can download a movie and then play it on their own device, as opposed to driving to the mall and buying a DVD. Plus, it's nearly instantaneous. After a book has been downloaded via this simple device, the patron can play the cartridge on an NLS digital talking book machine or compatible third-party player and use it again and again to receive more books. What? Wireless transmission of talking book files directly to patrons can make their interactions with their network library quicker and more personalized. A simple wireless device would allow even technologically unsophisticated patrons or those without standard computer or mobile access to receive NLS services. Why? Current use of talking books on cartridges by NLS patrons requires complex interactions among NLS, the network of cooperating libraries, the post office, and the patron. The process requires many steps of contact, downloading, shipping, playback, and return of materials. When? Baseline research for trial phase, including internal device testing, is now complete now prepping for wider network testing this fall. Who? Pilot participants will be distributed among network libraries nationwide. Braille e-reader. Refreshable braille displays. Braille e-readers turn a digital braille file instantaneously into braille for tactile reading. They've been around for four decades, but their cost put them out of reach of many. Now e-readers are becoming more affordable and easier to operate, and NLS is preparing for their wider use among its patrons. NLS is working with the Perkins Library in Watertown, Massachusetts, on a pilot to evaluate how best to distribute Braille files to patrons with e-readers, what the overall ease of use is, and what demands might be placed on network library logistics and tech support. What? Wide and affordable distribution 
of digital Braille files to individual patrons' refreshable Braille displays. Why? Press Braille duplication requires large staffs, budgets, storage, circulation systems, and shipping systems in order to reach end-user patrons. When? Kickoff with the Perkins Library was held August 3. Read about the event on the library's blog at www.perkins.org slash stories. Pilot will last about nine months. Who? 200 patrons associated with the Perkins Library eventually will participate in the pilot. Duplication on Demand When the distribution of digital talking books, DTBs, on cartridges began, it mirrored the system used for books on cassette, one book per cartridge, which circulated to patrons and was stored until required. It is now possible, with duplication on demand, to create a customized cartridge containing books selected for or requested by an individual patron. For libraries that choose to use it, Duplication on Demand makes all the titles in the NLS collection available all the time for all patrons without requiring libraries to stock physical copies of books or to anticipate demand. What? Just-in-time duplication of talking book cartridges on demand at network libraries. Why? NLS will be moving away from production of physical copies of DBs in the next 5 to 10 years. Duplication on demand would enable a network library to reach that goal sooner. When? Pilot has begun. Libraries are circulating duplication on demand cartridges to patrons. Who? NLS network libraries in Arkansas, the District of Columbia, Kentucky, North Dakota, and Virginia, two libraries there, all of which use the WebReads library automation system, will test duplication on demand. Synthetic speech. New synthetic speech technologies use a more realistic voice to read just about anything without sounding like a robot. There is no replacing the human voice for recording the text of books, but advances in synthetic speech could allow NLS to make available material that previously wasn't recorded, such as lengthy notes, bibliographies, or other repetitious information, and more cookbooks. Time-sensitive materials also could be produced more quickly using synthetic speech. However, the user experience needs to be tested with NLS patrons before synthetic speech can be widely used. What? Augmenting talking books with material that would otherwise be left unrecorded due to time and economic limitations, improving the timeliness of certain offerings, making the ephemeral or specialized texts available. Why? Human voice recording for talking books is ideal, but production is costly and time-consuming. That makes it hard to justify the voice recording of ancillary materials such as appendices, bibliographies, and notes. The time required for voice production also delays time-sensitive materials and is too expensive for ephemeral materials. When? Synthetic test texts now prepared. Finalizing rollout 
to pilot participants for late summer 2017. Who? 100 patrons across four NLS network libraries will participate in the pilot. Page 3. This article was posted by Kelly Gask on the ACB leadership list on October 13. FDA panel endorses gene therapy for a form of childhood blindness. Gene therapy, which has had a roller coaster history of high hopes and devastating disappointments, took an important step forward on Thursday. A Food and Drug Administration Advisory Committee endorsed the first gene therapy for an inherited disorder, a rare condition that causes a progressive form of blindness that usually starts in childhood. A recommendation came in a unanimous 16 to 0 vote after a day-long hearing that included emotional testimonials by doctors, parents of children blinded by the disease, and from children and young adults helped by the treatment. Before surgery, my vision was dark. It was like sunglasses over my eyes while looking through a little tunnel, 18-year-old Misty Lovelace of Kentucky told the committee. I can honestly say my biggest dream came true when I got my sight. I would never give it up for anything. It was truly a miracle. Several young people described being able to ride bicycles, play baseball, see their parents' faces, read, write, and venture out of their homes alone at night for the first time. I've been able to see things that I've never seen before, like stars, fireworks, and even the moon, Christian Gardino, 17, of Long Island, New York, told the committee. I will forever be grateful for receiving gene therapy. The FDA isn't obligated to follow the recommendations of its advisory committees, but an agency usually does. If the treatment is approved, one concern is cost. Some analysts have speculated it could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to treat each eye, meaning the cost for each patient could approach $1 million. Spark Therapeutics of Philadelphia, which developed the treatment, hasn't said how much the company would charge. But the company has said it would help patients get access to the treatment. Despite the likely steep price tag, the panel's endorsement was welcomed by scientists working in the field. It's one of the most exciting things for our field in recent memory, says Paul Yang, an assistant professor of ophthalmology at the Oregon Health and Science University, who wasn't involved in developing or testing the treatment. This would be the first approved treatment of any sort for this condition and the first approved gene therapy treatment for the eye in general, Yang says. So, on multiple fronts, it's a first and ushers in a new era of gene therapy. Ever since scientists began to unravel the genetic causes of diseases, Doctors have dreamed of treating diseases by fixing defective genes or giving patients new, healthy genes. But those hopes dimmed when early attempts failed and sometimes even resulted in the deaths of volunteers in early studies. But the field may have finally reached a turning point. The FDA recently approved the first so-called gene therapy product, 
which uses genetically modified cells from the immune system to treat a form of leukemia. And last week, scientists reported using gene therapy to successfully treat patients suffering from cerebral adrenal leukodystrophy, or ALD, a rare fatal brain disease portrayed in the film Lorenzo's Oil. Researchers are also testing gene therapy for other causes of blindness and blood disorders such as sickle cell disease. The gene therapy endorsed by the committee Thursday was developed for RPE65 mutation associated retinal dystrophy, which is caused by a defective gene that damages cells in the retina. About 6,000 people have the disease worldwide, including 1 to 2,000 people in the United States. The treatment, which is called Voretigene, V-O-R-E-T-I-G-E-N-E, Neparvovic, N-E-P-A-R-V-O-V-E-C, involves a genetically modified version of a harmless virus. The virus is modified to carry a healthy version of the gene into the retina. Doctors inject billions of modified viruses into both of a patient's eyes. In a study involving 29 patients aged 4 to 44, the treatment appeared to be safe and effective. More than 90% of the treated patients showed at least some improvement in their vision when tested in a specially designed obstacle course. The improvement often began within days of the treatment. Many went from being legally blind to not being legally blind, said Albert McGuire, a professor of ophthalmology who led the study at the University of Pennsylvania in an interview before the hearing. The improvement varied from patient to patient, and none of the patients regained normal vision. But some had a significant increase in their ability to see, especially at night or in dim light, which is a major problem for patients with this condition. What I saw in the clinic was remarkable, McGuire told the committee. Most patients became sure of themselves and pushed aside their guides. Rarely did I see a cane after treatment. That was the case of Allison Corona, who's now 25 and lives in Glenhead, New York. She underwent the treatment five years ago as part of the study. My light perception has improved tremendously, Corona said during an interview before the hearing. It's been life-changing. I am able to see so much better. I am so much more independent than what I was. It is so much better. The patients have been followed for more than three years, and the effects appear to be lasting. We have yet to see deterioration, McGuire says. So far, the improvement is sustained. The injections themselves did cause complications in a few patients, such as a serious infection that resulted in permanent damage and a dangerous increase in pressure in the eye. But there were no adverse reactions or any signs of problems associated with the gene therapy itself, the researchers reported. While this disease is rare, the same approach could work for similar forms of genetic eye disease, McGuire says. 
There are a lot of retinal diseases like this, and if you added them together, it's a big thing because they are all incurable, McGuire says. If approved, the treatment would be marketed under the name Luxturna, L-U-X-T-U-R-N-A. Page 4. The following article was posted by Maria Hansen to the ACB Leadership List on October 12. This is from the New York Law Journal and is entitled, Retail Websites are Public Accommodations Subject to ADA, Judge Rules, by Andrew Denny, New York Law Journal, September 5, 2017. As courts remain divided over whether or not websites should be held to the same standard under the Americans with Disabilities Act as brick-and-mortar locations, companies across the country continue to get hit with lawsuits for lack of online accommodations for the disabled. In a recent ruling, U.S. District Judge Jack Weinstein of the Eastern District of New York found that the website for Blick Art Materials where customers can purchase products, is a place of reasonable accommodation and thus subject to the ADA. Weinstein said in his August 1 ruling, it would be a cruel irony to accept Blick's argument that a website is not a place as described by the ADA and that doing so would render the legislation intended to emancipate the disabled from the bonds of isolation and segregation obsolete when its objective is increasingly within reach. A rigid adherence to a physical nexus requirement leaves potholes of discrimination in what would otherwise be a smooth road to integration, said the judge, denying Blick's motion to dismiss the suit, which was filed on behalf of Victor Andrews, a legally blind man who failed to buy art supplies through Blick's website. Weinstein also ordered a two-day Science Day hearing to be held in Andrews v. Blick Art Materials, 17-CV-767, in October to determine how the plaintiff can be accommodated. Andrews is represented by C.K. Lee and Ann Selig of the Lee Litigation Group. Blick is represented by David Korzenik and Terence Keegan of Miller, Korzenik, Summers, and Steve Mandel and Steve Barron of Mandel Minkus. Andrew's suit is one of a flood of new suits filed this year in federal courts and one of 14 that Andrews filed himself, which has raised concerns for businesses who do a significant amount of their business online, as well as their attorneys. Over a period of about two weeks in June and July, Stephen Matsura, who is legally blind, filed suit in U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York against 18 companies for lack of accommodation on their websites, including Shake Shack, Nordstrom, Inc., and Katz Delicatessen. Another legally blind man, Lawrence Young, filed suit in the Southern District against more than 20 companies over several weeks this summer. His targets include Sotheby's, Sparrow, and Ethan Allen. 
Everyone is getting hit with these, said Mark Sedotti, director of the business and commercial litigation practice at Gibbons. According to a post by Seafarth Shaw, there were at least 432 website accessibility suits filed this year as of August 15, up from more than 260 in 2016. The ADA was signed into law in 1990, a time when few people used the Internet. The U.S. Department of Justice, which enforces the ADA, announced in 2010 that it would promulgate new rules for website accessibility, but it has not expected to do so until next year at the earliest. In lieu of rules, the DOJ has said that the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines developed by the World Wide Web Consortium provides a minimum standard. Meantime, the circuits are split on whether or not websites are considered public accommodations under Title III of the ADA. Weinstein and other judges in the Second Circuit, as well as judges in the First and Seventh Circuits, have found that websites should make accommodations for the disabled, according to a post by Fisher and Phillips. But judges in the Third, Sixth, and Ninth Circuits have found, however, that places of accommodation must be physical, brick-and-mortar sites. Of the hundreds of suits filed, so far one has gone to trial, and it didn't bode well for the defense bar. In June, U.S. District Judge Robert Scola of the Southern District of Florida found that supermarket chain Winn-Dixie violated the rights of a blind customer by not making its website usable through screen reader software. Sedoti said that he advises clients facing website accessibility suits that showing judges that the defendants have undertaken steps to make their websites accessible, such as paying for an audit, could potentially stop the clock on the accumulation of attorney fees that would be awarded to plaintiff's lawyers. You really want to take some preemptive steps, Sedoti said. Look at the guidelines, see how far away you are, and get an assessment. Page 5 Kelly Gask posts this article on ACB Leadership, October 12, 2017. This device translates text into Braille in real time. Team Tactile hopes to create an inexpensive and portable device that can raise text right off the page. This was posted in smithsonianmagazine.com. In the wee hours of Valentine's Day last year, a team of six women, all MIT engineering undergraduates, sat exhausted but exhilarated. Their tables strewn with colorful wires, post-it notes, food wrappers, scraps of papers, shapes cut from cardboard. This was no craft project gone awry. The team had just competed in Make MIT's Hackathon, a competition in which teams of students spend 15 hours designing, coding, constructing, testing, and debugging ambitious projects. The women, competing under the team name 100% Enthusiasm, had set out to tackle a big challenge, 
Accessibility for the Blind. Their idea? A portable, inexpensive device that could scan text and convert it to Braille in real time. It was something with potential to transform the lives of some of the 1.3 million Americans who are legally blind. This first iteration was rough. Nearly the size of an adult's hand, the mechanisms of the device were sandwiched between two panes of plastic, wires and circuit boards exposed. Six pins popped up through the top of the device to display a single Braille character, letter, number, or punctuation mark. It imaged each character of text using an external computer's webcam, rather than an internal camera as the team had hoped, explains Chen Bonnie Wang, one of the team's members who is currently a senior majoring in material science and engineering. It was slow and not particularly portable, but it worked, translating text to Braille. Team 100% Enthusiasm won. The win was just the beginning of their work with the device, which they dubbed Tactile. Now, many prototypes later, the team has received another accolade. Tactile is one of nine winners for this year's Limelson MIT Student Prize, which celebrates the translation of ideas into inventions that improve the world in which we live, according to the contest's website. The winning inventions, a folding electric drone, proteins to fight superbugs, and a solar-powered desalination system for off-grid water production, to name a few, tackle a wide range of problems. We were super honored to be chosen as one of the winners of the award, says Wang. The title came with a $10,000 prize that they are hoping to put back into the project to continue to improve how the device works. The team's latest prototype, about the size of a candy bar, can display six characters at a time. The average English word is roughly five characters long and has a built-in camera. Users can place it down on a line of text and with a push of a button, the device takes an image. Optical character recognition then takes over identifying the characters on the page using Microsoft's Computer Vision API. Then the team's software translates each character into Braille and subsequently triggers the mechanical system in the box to raise and lower the pins. They have applied for a patent for the integration of the system through Microsoft's Make What's Next patent program, which supports women inventors. Currently, the camera only takes a picture of its field of view. Chandani Doshi, one of the team members who is majoring in electrical engineering and computer science, explains via email. We are aiming to make the device similar to a handheld scanner that allows the user to scan the entire page in one go. The idea is to make it as easy as possible to operate preventing the user from needing to keep track of where they are on the page. Though this is not the first real-time text-to-braille device, most products are based on digital text, like ebooks or PDFs, and they are extremely expensive. 
For example, the HumanWare Brailliant can connect to mobile devices and computers, allowing the user to type on the six-keyed Braille keyboard and read using the one-line display of 32 characters. Prices for the device start at over $2,500. Also popular are what's known as Braille note-takers. These are like many computers, allowing word processing, the use of Excel and PowerPoint, and Internet browsing. But these, too, retail in the thousands. And a lot of text is not readily available in electronic format. Menus, brochures, receipts, business cards, class handouts, and more. Tactile would raise the text of these inaccessible documents right off the page. The team hopes to eventually sell the device for a maximum cost of $200. One of the many challenges in development, however, is figuring out a better way to raise and lower the pins. In many devices on the market, this has long been done using Piezo Electronics, an expensive method that harnesses the properties of crystal structures. The team hopes to use microfluidics, differences in either liquid or air pressure, or electromagnetism, interactions of electric currents and magnetic fields, to move the pins. They are now testing both systems to figure out which is the least expensive, but most responsive and shrinkable for their final prototype. Ultimately, the team hopes that the final product will be slightly smaller than their current prototype and display two lines of 18 characters each. They hope to get it to market within two years. This opens up the world, really. What limitation is there if you have a device that would transcribe any document into Braille? The team's advisor, Paul Paravano, who has been visually impaired since he was three, inquires in a video about the device. Suddenly, the library is open. The question, however, is how many people will be waiting and ready to read the library. A commonly cited statistic is that less than 10% of people who are legally blind can actually read Braille. Many people prefer to use text-to-speech technology and other audio-based programs, says Marianne Hirsch, a researcher who specializes in assistive technology at the University of Glasgow. Braille is challenging to learn, and given the option, she says, many instead choose audio or even magnification if they have limited eyesight. It is important to note, however, that the Braille literacy numbers are based on an outdated mode of measurement. Supply of Braille books from American Printing House for the Blind explains Ike Presley, National Project Manager for the American Foundation for the Blind. We definitely want to stifle that misconception that Braille is dead and technology is putting Braille out of business, he says. If anything, technology is making Braille more accessible. The women of Team Tactile are well aware of the statistic, but believe that part of the problem is the lack of inexpensive devices to make Braille more available. The market for such devices is small, so few companies venture in with innovative ideas. We don't have a Microsoft or an Apple. The tech companies that make the tools for people who are blind or visually impaired are relatively small, says Presley. 
This means less competition, less innovation, and higher prices. This really drives up the cost, which limits access to Braille even more. It's just a bad cycle, says Wang. Whether this could encourage people who don't already know Braille to use it is open to questions, says Hirsch. But she notes that any new accessibility technology that combines low cost with ease of use could be extremely helpful in the market. Learning Braille means literacy for the blind community, says Presley, who helps train service providers so they can more effectively work with the visually impaired. Audio systems don't provide the same understanding of language. Auditory is great, but it doesn't give you the literacy, he says. When you listen to text read aloud, you don't know how to spell the words. You don't see the grammar. You don't see how text is formatted. But when you read it in Braille, you do. Studies also suggest that Braille literacy increases both likelihood of being employed and an overall higher earnings potential for the blind and visually impaired, a group that has historically suffered high rates of unemployment. These factors have only made Team Tactile more determined to keep working on their product. All six engineers will graduate this June, but that isn't going to slow them down. Three plan to continue working on Tactile, says Wang, and the others will continue part-time. These women are on a great path, and as young as they are, if they can devote the next 20 years of their career to this, wow, says Presley. There's no telling what they might come up with. Page 6. The Sound Prince Calendar. October 23. Guide Dog Users of Kentuckiana Membership Call. 7 p.m. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. October 24 is the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired Fundraiser at Texas Roadhouse in Owensboro from 4 to 10 p.m. Present your Savvy Texas Roadhouse Flyer in Owensboro and Savvy will receive 10% of the bill, dine-in or carry-out. The Texas Roadhouse is at 943 Mosley Road in Owensboro. For more information, call Rick Boggess at 270-684-4418. On October 25, the Bluegrass Council of the Blind will have its next peer support group meeting from noon to 2 p.m. This is the Blind Ability Celebration at the BCB office, 1093 South Broadway in Lexington. Call 859-259-1834 for more information. On October 26, the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will have its next in-person support group for individuals with low vision from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville. For more information and to let us know you'll be coming, call 502-895-4598. October 27 is the Statewide Rehabilitation Council meeting. The committees begin meeting at 9.30 a.m. The full council begins its meetings at 11.15 and meetings will end by 2.30 p.m. It will be held at the McDowell Center in Louisville, 8412 Westport Road. For more information, contact Jennifer Wright at 502-564-4754.
Also on October 27, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will have its next roundabout. This will be a spooky roundabout. Education and technology begin at 3.30. The tip sheet at 5. Page turners, 5.30 to 6. Followed by dinner at 6 p.m., $5 per person. Games and crafts from 7 to 10. Reading of print materials will be available from 5 until 7.30 and will have Halloween activities as well. At United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville, sign up by calling 502-895-4598. On October 30, the KCB Convention Planning Committee will hold a meeting at 8 p.m. by conference call at 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. The following events are scheduled for November. On November 2, the American Council of Blind Lions will have its next conference call, which will include a presentation by Jack Link, Blind Past District Governor in Missouri. This is an opportunity to share ideas and ways to be included in your local Lions Clubs, open to blind lions throughout the United States. Call 712-432-3900. The code is 796096, and the call is at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. On November 3, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will have a roundabout, including education and technology from 3.30 to 5, discussion time 5 to 6, dinner 6 to 7, $5 per person, and games and crafts 7 to 10. Reader assistance will also be available from 5 until 7.30. At United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville, call 502-895-4598 to sign up. On November 4, KCB Next Generation invites everyone to brunch at Denny's on Dutchman's Lane in Louisville, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. For more information, call Amanda Selm at 502-750-1774 or email her at alsmoot87 at gmail.com. On November 5, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will hold its committee meetings. The Advocacy Committee will meet at 7 p.m., and the Education Activities and Technology Committee, EAT, will meet at 8, both on the conference line at 605-475-6006, intercode 294444. On November 7, the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will have its next conference call meeting and support group at 8 p.m. on the conference line at 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. This meeting will feature a guest speaker. On November 8, the Kentucky Council of the Blind PR Membership Committee will meet at 8 p.m. on the conference line 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. On November 9, the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will have its first peer support group meeting of the month at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. Call 502-895-4598 
for information and to sign up. Also on November 9, the Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind will have its meeting at 7 p.m. by conference call. The phone number is 605-475-4700, enter code 155619. On November 10, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind Roundabout will include education and technology beginning at 3.30, discussion time and tip sheet, 5 to 6, dinner, 6 to 7, $5 per person, bingo, 7 to 9, $2 per person, and cards and crafts will also be available. Reader assistance will be available from 5 until 7.30. At United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville, call 502-895-4598 to sign up. November 11 is Codes, Ciphers, and Secret Messages. From 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. What does Braille have in common with Morse code, semaphore, shorthand, and ASCII? They're all codes. Join us to crack a few codes and to invent our own for adults and children six and up at the American Printing House Museum on Frankfurt Avenue in Louisville. For more information, call 502-899-2213. November 11 is the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind Board Meeting at 11 a.m. on the conference line at 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. On November 12, KCB Next Generation will have its monthly conference call at 8 p.m. by phone on the same conference line 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. Also on November 12 is a meeting of ACB families. It will be at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and will be on the conference line 712-432-3900, enter code 796096. The guest speakers for this call will be Sharon Bensinger and Pauletta Feldman, who will talk about the founding of VIPS, the Visually Impaired Preschool Service in Louisville. This is a preschool program that serves children birth to five years. On November 14, the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired Savvy will have its next meeting from 1 to 3 p.m. Central Time at the Wing Avenue Baptist Church, 628 Wing Avenue in Owensboro. For more information, contact Rick Bogus at 270-684-4418. The speaker for this program is from Vanda Pharmaceuticals, and they will be discussing non-24-hour sleep disorder. November 17 and 18 is the Kentucky Council of the Blind State Conference and Convention. Hit a home run with KCB. Participate in workshops, programs, exhibits, food, and make good friends. Sponsored by the Kentucky Council of the Blind at the Ramada Inn North in Louisville, 1041 Zorn Avenue. Room rates are $80 per night plus tax for up to four people in a room. Make reservations by calling 502-897-5101. For more information, call KCB at 502-895-4598. On November 19, 
the Kentucky School for the Blind Alumni Association Board will meet at 8 p.m. by phone at 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. On November 20, the KCB board meeting will be held at 7.30 p.m. on the same conference line, 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. On November 22, the Bluegrass Council of the Blind will have a Thanksgiving gathering from noon to 2 p.m. at the BCB office, 1093 South Broadway in Lexington. Call 859-259-1834 for more information. On November 25 is Families Day Open House at the American Printing House for the Blind, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Visitors can write their names in Braille, see a book from Helen Keller's Bible, play games, and read books designed for children who are blind, and enjoy many other activities in the award-winning museum. See Denver the Guide Dog, a Discovery Channel video about how a puppy becomes a dog guide and is matched with a new owner. Holiday goodies and hot cider will be served for all ages. For more information, call the museum at 502-899-2213. On November 26, ACB Families will have its peer support group meeting for the month on the conference line at 712-432-3900, enter code 796096. The time is 9 p.m. Eastern Time. On November 27, Guide Dog Users of Kentuckyana have their November conference call at 7 p.m. by phone. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. And some dates in December include December 2, Christmas with the Council, 4.30 p.m. until 9 p.m. at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville. Call 502-895-4598 for more information. On December 3 is the 6th Annual ACB Radio Holiday Auction, beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on ACB Radio. For more information, visit acbradio.org or acb.org. On December 12, the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired will hold its Christmas party from noon until 2.30 p.m. Join us for dinner, Dirty Santa Gift Exchange, $10 limit, and more. Wing Avenue Baptist Church in Owensboro. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind, or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Soundprints. Have a great week, everybody.
Yeah.